This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So we do want to talk a little bit about global security concerns. We have the perfect guest to do that with. Andy Purdy is Chief Security Officer at Huawei Technologies USA. He is joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Of course, Huawei, very familiar to our audience. I feel like amid the U.S.-China trade tensions, we cannot forget that the Commerce Department blacklisted Huawei uh, back in the spring uh, to stop American businesses from selling components uh, to the company. The White House for a while has accused uh, the company of being a threat to America's national security. So let's kind of roll it all together. Andy, good to have you here with us um, because I feel like the more conversations we have on, on on these types of issues, the smarter we all get. Um, the recent bans that have come out uh, from the administration, what has that done to you guys as a company and in terms of uh, interacting with American businesses? Well, there's certainly been an impact on Huawei. We've got nearly 300 American companies that, that want to sell to us that supply up to 25 or 30% of all of our global components. So we've had to move to what they call Plan B, something that IBM had recommended we start, and we did start some time ago. Um, so we have had to find alternatives to those, and right now we're able to ship our 5G technology with no American components. Uh, so we're not entirely sure of the impact on us, but we do know that over 40,000 American jobs hang in the balance for no good reason. So we hope that these issues can be put aside. This effort to, uh, to an effort to hurt China, we're end up hurting America. We're cutting off our nose to spite our face. And what sort of progress, if any, are you making in Washington to get that message across? Are they listening, or are you sort of shouting? into the wilderness here? Well, we're not making any progress. I mean, the fact is, and I think the existence of the U.S. trade talks, the geopolitical situation, although everybody says that we're not connected to it, uh, the government won't even talk to us. They won't talk to us about the kinds of things that allow Nokia and Ericsson to do business in the United States, despite their deep ties to China. So we hope that if, the, if there is some kind of a trade deal, that maybe then the government will talk to us about these mechanisms. And Telefonica, the German company, just came out, decided to do a 5G contract with us, despite the pressure of the U.S. on Germany. So we can address real cybersecurity risk, and we'd love to collaborate with the U.S. government. What's the future, though, I do think, because we have tons of conversation. The magazine just this week has a story about Chinese-Americans who are being called, and especially those who work on government projects and have high security clearances, where they are under heightened scrutiny, and sometimes wrongly so. And so I do wonder, like, what is the future in a, in a world where we talk about a bifurcation, where it's kind of the U.S. versus China? So yeah, what does that mean for a company like you guys? And the Verizon CEO recently said that we want to avoid a 5G Cold War. Brad Correct. Smith came out and said it, 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 it just doesn't make any sense. We see very important things happening in Europe. For example, in Germany with the Telefonica announcement, but the government is working hard. The European Union is working hard to try to come up with objective and transparent bases for knowing which products are worthy of trust. Because the bad guys out there have great skills, and we have to use very good technologies to address the risk that, that comes through all products. So, Andy, I, I want to ask you, because your background, you worked in the White House. I mean, you understand the other side of the table uh, in many ways. How surprised were you that all this went down, essentially knowing how the sausage is made on the other side? Well, th there have been some longstanding concern, as you know. And although the tariffs help obscure 
these fundamental agreement among the Republicans and Democrats. The concern about theft of intellectual property, the concerns about forced technology transfer, the threat that the U.S. sees from China as China has grown economically and militarily. These are things that, that, that cut across the board. And so and legitimate concerns. Well, let's put it this way. Our government, the American government, has to make sure that we address the risk to this country. We've got to learn lessons like from the 75 years ago D-Day. In cyberspace, we have to be ready, much more ready than we were when the Germans and the Nazis swarmed over Europe. We have to be ready to address real risk. And we think it can be done, and it has to be done with standards and conformance programs for the operators, as well as testing, independent testing for the equipment. We'd love to participate in those conversations. But it, it is interesting, too, though, that if there is a division, a technology division in the world going forward, we talk about it a lot about 5G, maybe there's going to be two standards or, you know, you do wonder what's, what, what does that mean for global security concerns? Well, it, potentially, it, it, what it means is a real threat to competition and, and competition is critically important. It's important for security. It's important for resilience. It's important for innovation. We need to make sure that we have competition. And when you look at the equipment vendors, there is not enough competition. I hope Nokia is strong enough to, to survive, frankly. I hope that they're strong enough to do the R&D that they need to. With your expertise in understanding where you are currently, and then as Jason mentioned, you know, having spent some time, um, you know, along the Beltway, and I just do wonder, so what what is the answer? Because we do know in terms of our relationship with the Chinese that, there has been problems with intellectual property and there has been a lot of technology transfer or if you're starting up a business you've got to do it along with a Chinese company you know it's very clear that the Chinese you know have a mission to be very dominant and I don't have a problem with that because I feel like that's capitalism at play but because of the past how do we know what we're dealing with as, as a country, the United States? Well, I'm glad I had the, the opportunity to participate in discussions at the United Nations here in New York last week with governments and private companies. It's a combination of we need norms for governments. We need benchmarks that we can hold governments accountable. We can have mechanisms to create incentives and consequences if, govern if governments violate the rules. But also you need companies. You need independent standards. You need independent testing so we can address the real risks. It's the combination, the shared responsibility that's going to help us. Just 30 seconds. What would be a great incentive for the Chinese to really make sure that in terms of the government uh, conformity that it happens just quickly? Well, I mean, I think the global community holding them and other countries mm. accountable, the World Trade Organization, to standards on the theft of intellectual property, on forced technology transfer. We have to have visibility and then make clear when, when a country, whoever it is, is violating those norms. But it's interesting. In a week where we know the WTO right. is at risk. is weakened, yeah. to say the least. Andy Purdy, we hope you'll come back. I Thank feel like you. we were only able to scratch the surface of a really important topic. Chief Security Officer at Huawei Technologies. Here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Let's get back to the big breaking news crossing the terminal right now. U.S. reaching a deal in principle with China. It's a trade deal, folks, awaiting President Trump's sign off. Well, there is one man that we turn to when all of this is going down, and that is Sean Don, and he joins us from the nation's capital. All right, Sean, bring us up to date. What's the breakthrough? Uh, well, what we have heard is that negotiators on both sides have reached this agreement in principle. That that agreement will um, uh, lay out uh, terms under which China will uh, uh, ramp up its purchases of uh, agricultural goods. It also will see the U.S. Uh, roll back some of the existing tariffs. Uh, we're hearing that uh, the rate on those tariffs could fall uh, as much as half. 
Wow. This is a big deal. So uh, let's break it down a little bit. Those agri, that agricultural piece, talk to us about that because that has been central to President Trump's demands, correct? Absolutely. I mean, this is really about politics. Uh, Donald Trump has a huge constituency in farm states. He wants to shore those up before 2020. And because of politics, uh, they were one of the main targets for China when it retaliated against the U.S. uh, when President Trump first imposed tariffs in March 2018. That's the reason those soybeans have become that kind of emblem of the the trade wars. Uh, So we expect China to start buying a lot more pork, a lot more soybeans, and... uh, And we'll go from there. You know, it's interesting. And I think about politically how there's been a lot of conversations about getting smarter, better, more current trade deals. Do we get that with this? Because I think about as an American, I'm thinking about, okay, where are we going? Is it about ag products or is it about more higher tech things that we need to be concerned about? And there's the rub. Uh, Really, uh, what this does is it puts a big pause on the trade wars, and it kicks the can down the road on a lot of big, big issues. There will be, uh, we're told, some language in here on intellectual property. That's positive in terms of uh, some of those bigger uh, issues that the the Trump administration and the U.S., in fact, has long had with China. Uh, But what's not going to be in there are big uh, efforts to address uh, things like industrial subsidies. Those are the low interest loans and cheap electricity and things like that that China has used to to kind of fuel its in, in industrial might. And those things will have to come in later phases if those later phases come. So there's a you know there's a kind of short term victory uh, to be had here. And we really do need to stress that this uh, we're being told still needs to be signed off on by Donald Trump, but that the negotiators at least have gotten to this deal, and that is being presented to Donald Trump this afternoon uh, for a sign-off. Now, we could get an announcement uh, very soon after that, but Donald Trump still needs to sign off on this. Although this morning in in a tweet, he said, we're very close to a deal. And for the first time in a while, we heard him say that that was something that the U.S. wanted as well. Normally, he's pointed to China. So some some signs that he's warmed up to this uh, deal, but it's being brought to him as we speak to, to get that final sign-off. All right. Just checking on the market reaction to this breaking news. The S&P now up about seven-tenths of one percent, so off of its spike and and off the highs of the day, we should uh, point out. Stocks did surge, as uh, Sean and our colleagues point out in their reporting early in the day, yeah. off of those right. uh, presidential tweets. Right? You know, Sean, I'm glad you brought up sort of the, the different elements of this, because Literally just a few minutes ago, we were talking to the chief security officer of Huawei. That's a company that has been really caught up in this trade war, in this tension, in this conflict, I should say, between these two countries. How likely is it that we soon do move on to phase two and beyond? Or does this administration feel like it's going to be content to, you know, sort of sit on phase one for a while? Yeah. And, and, and it's not just uh, Huawei. It's Huawei's American suppliers who right. have been essentially banned from, from from doing business with Huawei, which is a huge uh, telecommunications company. Uh, look, this doesn't resolve that. It doesn't resolve all sorts of other issues that the U.S. and China have, whether it's over Hong Kong or over Xinjiang, uh, that area in far, far western China where uh, uh, 
China is accused of of uh, human rights abuses of Muslim minorities that have led to to sanctions here in the United States. Uh, it doesn't get into whole other uh, conversations that we're having about Chinese investment in the U.S. or uh, other national security threats that people here in Washington see from Chinese technology and, and, and all sorts of things. And that's the point here a little bit. We need to remember phase one, it's good. It kind of parks the, uh, the, the, the trade war for a while if President Trump signs off this afternoon. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't address the fact that we have had this major deterioration over the past 18 months in the broader relationship. Well, that's what I'm thinking about because I think about when you've got a good friendship or a good relationship with somebody and then something goes horribly wrong. It's never the same. And I do wonder about what this relationship is, Sean, going forward. What's the level of trust really between the two? I mean, I understand with trade, there's numbers and there's ways to check on what's going on, but there's so many other things where there's no transparency. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if, if this is the U.S. and China sending each other flowers or holding hands <laughs> for the first time. Uh, but it is, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. That erosion of trust is really important. And that's why people talk about a new Cold War between the U.S. and China. That's why uh, these two big economies uh, are, are looking at each other and wondering if they can ever have the same relationship again. Uh, and, you know, that's the question that's not going to be answered today or tomorrow, probably not next year. So, Sean, you know, you mentioned when we first started talking something that is well known to all of us around this table, which is there's a political element to this for sure. This is happening at, safe to say, a complicated time in Washington where we're looking at all our screens here and while we're sort of split between trade and impeachment hearings, uh, there's also something else going on on Capitol Hill, presumably more squarely in your world, which is USMCA, that trade deal among the US, Canada and Mexico. Help us square sort of the politics of trade and the politics of politics, I guess. Yeah, look, I mean, Trump's big economic promise in 2016 was to remake America's relationships with the world. Trade was a big component of that. He promised to renegotiate NAFTA. Uh, he's not only renegotiated, he's renamed it the USMCA. Uh, so he, he gets the claim of victory there to a certain extent. And with China and his tariffs, you know, we were just talking about the relationship and, and the erosion of trust there and how it's a changed relationship and so on. He will get to claim at least having done some of that. And if there's a deal and that has uh, diminished uh, some of the uh, uh, the tensions that are there and the things that have been kind of casting a shadow over the U.S. and global economies, then that's, that's a positive potentially that he can take into the economy, although it's an kind of unfinished uh, positive. But yeah, uh, Donald Trump has uh, rewritten the rules when it comes to trade and politics in America. We had something I never thought we'd, I'd see this this week, and that is uh, Donald Trump and Richard Trumka from the AFL-CIO, a longtime skeptic of trade deal, uh, of trade deals, uh, and longtime opponent of trade deals, even under President Obama, uh, a big-time Democratic base guy as well. Uh, but we had those two men agreeing on a new version of NAFTA, uh, which both of those men have excoriated for decades. Right. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable moment. So, you know, 
it, it's been a big week in terms of impeachment and the broader politics for Donald Trump. Uh, but if he gets this deal with China and, and, and agrees to the final sign-off here, he's got two big victories on trade that he can claim this week. Yeah, the split screen is just incredible, Carol. It is pretty incredible, the visuals right on this. Hey, we're talking with Sean Don, and he follows trade globalization for us here at Bloomberg News. He's joining us from our bureau in Washington. The news at this hour, we have seen some equity market reaction to the upside on this. U.S. negotiators have reached the terms of a phase one trade deal with China that now awaits President uh, Trump's approval. This is according to people briefed on the plans. I have to say, I am an optimist, optimist um, Sean, on so many different things, but do I feel like Charlie Brown when the, the football is, you know, pulled out from under me once again? Because we've seen this back and forth so many times with this administration, this president specifically. Something different this time around? feels like something different. Um, I think this is something that the president has wanted uh, for uh, some weeks now. He announced uh, the kind of bones of this or the architecture of this October 11th in the Oval Office. And since then, we've had the kind of back and forth between the U.S. and China in, in terms of trying to get this on down on paper. And it looks like they've actually gotten there. Um, that is, uh, you know, Lucy's going to let you kick this football. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? There's going to be other footballs down the line, and I'm not so sure about those. And one logistical question that you may have answered, Sean, and I apologize if you have, which is the president can sign this and then it just goes into effect, or is this something that does require congressional approval? Look, uh, this does not require congressional approval. Uh, the, the next question we're going to turn to is, who will sign this? Uh, will Trump meet with Xi Jinping? Some people are talking about Davos in January as mm. a possible signing date. Uh, will Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, hop on a plane to Beijing? Or will someone from China uh, come here? Those are all the questions we're going to have to answer after we, we get an announcement. Uh, and you know what? In the trade world, nothing's ever uh, uh, finished until uh, there's a signature there and uh, the thing is put away in, in the Library of Congress. Uh, somewhere. Uh, it's the, you know, we saw that with the USMCA, yeah. uh, you know, Donald Trump and uh, his leaders of US and, and uh, oh, sorry, the Mexico and Canada signed that over a year ago. Uh, and it took this long to get it through Congress. But at least with this deal with China, it's not going to have to go right. through Congress. So it's a it's a more immediate thing. There are going to be some, you know, the, the, we're going to get lawyers on both sides doing what's called legal scrub before assigning. Uh, but that's all the kind of stage stuff that you get in a normal trade deal. Well, and as you certainly appreciate more than anyone, given all the lead up to this, the president's going to want a big photo op, presumably. One one would imagine that the idea of coming together with uh, President Wait, Xi. really? Wait, you what? think, Jason? <laughs> what do you think, Sean? I think the guy's a little shy. Isn't he? <laughs> I mean, he's kind of no. Look, I I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that those are all the questions uh, that are that are, that are going to come into play. I mean, if you if you go back a few weeks, this originally was going to be signed uh, at the middle of November down in Chile when yeah. Xi Jinping and right. Donald Trump were at this APEC summit down there. That summit got canceled because of unrest down in Chile, um, and that that's part of the reason we've had this delay. Where it's you know y you need a hard deadline. Yeah. Well, this time around, the hard deadline is. These tariffs that are going to go into effect on Sunday, unless uh, we we get this deal or the president delays them. So you know, that's that's why where we are. Sean, 
Somebody have their Wheaties this week because, man, NAFTA, the new NAFTA, Askamaka, as we like to call it, USMCA, uh, and then maybe a U.S.-China trade deal, a lot coming out of the administration and the president this week. Yeah. Um, this is all stuff that's been building for a while. Mm. And, uh, I mean, it's Robert Lighthizer, who's at the middle of all of this, is a man who is in his early 70s uh, and has a remarkable amount of stamina, clearly, because he's been working both of these files very hard in the last few weeks. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. So grateful to you. You're breaking news. You're coming on our air to help us break it down. I Sean Donnan. I don't think he does either. And very good on Twitter. You got to follow him on Twitter. Uh, highly amusing and highly Apparently informative. Baking too on the weekends. And baking on the weekends. Kind of a renaissance man. Big baseball fan. He does Jeez. it all. He does it all. Sean Donnan. Uh, thank you so much. So amid trade tensions and amid everything else that's going on yeah. in the world, there are some significant shifts happening in the investing world. I feel like we've been talking about that mm -hmm. for a good part of the year. When we look back at 2019, it feels like ESG sort of having a moment. So let's start there with Jordan Ferris, Managing Director and Head of ETF Product Development at Nuveen, based out in Chicago, here with us in New York City today. So... Am I right? Is ESG having a moment here? Jason, I think you are right. I think ESG is having a moment. This has been one of the most popular ta uh, talking points within the ETF industry this year in 2019, and even some in 2018. We brought our first products to market in 2016. They're about to hit their three-year track record, and the performance has actually been quite good. And investors and advisors are starting to understand that ESG doesn't necessarily mean outperformance. It can be something that can doesn't necessarily mean underperformance. It mm. can drive outperformance and mitigate risk. I got to tell you though, there's ESG and then there's ESG. So what are the parameters that <laughs> to that qualify existential. ESG it's, it's to existential. Yeah, sure. So it can vary by firm. So we always encourage advisors to take a look at the underlying methodology. But if we take a look at some of the acronyms that are in the investment space right now, so ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, right. and these are a series of factors that we can rank companies and choose the ones that are outperforming those peers, their peers. Do they have to outperform on all of them? They do not. Uh, we would use an aggregate score and they just have to outperform at that aggregate level. How do you how do you identify social though? We we talk about this. We've had a lot of conversations. In fact, just in the last couple of weeks, um, about how do you really quantify, qualify, um, define kind of the social factors? Sure. So this governance can, is pretty easy. Governance is easy. I feel like environmental is getting easier as well. Mm -hmm. Social is tricky. Yeah, it, it can be. So this can be something like health and safety procedures that you would have um, on your factory floor. Let's say you're a car manufacturer. Mm. Whichever firm has better safety procedures on their floor would likely have a lower incidence of injury, which can be expensive for firms to deal with. They have to hire somebody to come in and replace that worker, which can be expensive, and that worker may not be as productive as the person that was injured. So these are things that are good for their business model. If they are doing a good job taking care of their workers, that would be something that's in the S or the social category. And so how much does something like what the Business Roundtable said earlier this year around it can't just be for shareholders, we've got to be more holistic in terms of what we're delivering for the broader universe of stakeholders. I know that's something, uh, a term that, that some people use. Is that underneath more of the popularity? What's sort of bringing it more into the conversation in your estimation? I think there are two things. I think there is this societal change where people are valuing 
environmental, social, and governance concerns more than they used to. And they're able to integrate those as a philosophy through their in investments now, as opposed to doing, doing that elsewhere in their life, whether they're donating their time or their money to a certain cause. Now you can incorporate that as a philosophy in your investments. Also, with the immediacy of news, we're able to see what's going on with companies yeah. in a much quicker and a much more transparent way. We do a responsible investing survey every year at Nuveen, and one of, one of the key points from this year's responsible investing survey looked at millennials. Millennials are twice as likely to call their advisor if they see a company in the news for negative reasons, and they're twice as likely to sell that position if they see a company in the news for negative reasons. So how quickly are you guys willing to sell a company? And I'm just looking at... Um, I think it's the ESG, I think it's a large cap ETF mm -hmm. that you guys have. I mean, Procter & Gamble, Walt Disney, Verizon, Intel, Merck, mm -hmm. Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Citigroup, Cisco. I mean, this reads like, you know, kind of an S&P 500 index fund in many ways. So I'm just curious, you know, one of these companies does something egregious. Do you drop them right away? So within our equity products, uh, we have a quarterly rebalance. So if something happened and the company had a major controversy and they were included in the portfolio, they'd be removed move to that quarterly rebalance. However, what if they say they're, they're working on it? So companies can become re-eligible if they demonstrate policies and procedures that would help them eliminate that risk. But you drop forward. them until you see change until in the their, Until their score goes back up above wow. our thresholds. Interestingly enough, companies that, that tend to experience major controversies probably have ESG scores that would not pass our threshold anyway. So we have been able within our suite of products to avoid a lot of companies that have made major headlines for negative reasons. Wow, cool. really interesting. All right, well, thanks for taking us in that side. Really interesting. Jordan Ferris, Managing Director, Head of ETF Product Development over at Nuveen, based in Chicago, here with us in New York City. All right, well, it was private, kind of, and then it was very, very public. We're talking about Lululemon, and this is a story that's really never been told. I can say that with You're some so confidence You're because so <laughs> I decided to tell it myself. <laughs> hey, Jason, uh, wait, wait, Jill, so Jason comes to you with this story. You're like, really, Jason? Yeah, I'm like, uh, why don't you talk to a few other people and make sure that this, <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, that this adds story up. a little of course, bit. We're talking about Lululemon. Yeah, and I mean, obviously in the news today, they came out with earnings. And what's interesting is this is a company, Joel, that's at a point where only by even meeting expectations, it has set such high expectations that the stock actually goes down. But when you look at it across the year, the stock has almost doubled. Yeah, it's kind of incredible, right? And so what, what Jason's pitch was, Carol, was... Hey, there's actually a backstory here. You, you know, before this thing took off, they actually went through a turbulent period and uh, some private equity money got involved here and actually sort of like came to their rescue a little bit. Right. What's that story, Jason? All right. So the story is basically, so back in 2005, Advent, a private equity firm not that many yeah. people know. It's right. not a brand name like Blackstone, KKR, or Carlisle. Uh, they invested in this little Vancouver company with a funny name, as David Musifer said to me, the managing partner at Advent. They invest in 2005. It goes public in 2007, 2008. They sell all their shares by 2009. They make eight times their money. Job well done. Fast forward 2013, they've got this see-through pants problem. Yeah, failing yeah, yeah, yeah. the, as one of our headlines put it at the time, the bend over test, real headline. Uh, and also their founder gets crossways, Chip Wilson with the board. There is some management tension and Advent comes back in and buys half of Wilson's stake public shares, 
comes back in and in the intervening time fixes the company and the market cap has quintupled. Yeah, the stock's quintupled. up. I mean, the stock has just doubled almost this year alone. Right. What I think is interesting. In a, yeah, so just in, for context, today yeah. is a blip when you look at it. Right. I'm, I'm looking at it for a year right now, even in, in year to date even, and it's like, yeah, that's like insignificant. It's so, up 83% year yep. to date. But there I think what's interesting is in a year where politicians, specifically folks like Elizabeth Warren, are questioning you know, the role of private equity in our markets, like here's an example of private equity coming in and potentially, right, helping and, and right helping investors. Firm. You know, yeah. there's a lot of people who made a lot of money. Off public, of right. right, public yeah. shareholders. And in many ways, they expanded a company in this case and went in and, you know, Joel and I have talked a lot over the past couple of years about sort of what is the private equity playbook. What I find so interesting about this, too, is this was the private equity playbook in public in many ways. You know, Lululemon was still reporting quarter to quarter. And right. couldn't be scrutinized more after right. the, the bend over incident. Exactly. And, you know, one of the people that I talked to for the story, incidentally, and this is, you know, sort of better to be lucky than smart in some ways with timing, the COO who mm-hmm. was largely responsible for this, this guy named Stuart Hazelden, he was just New named job. this week yeah. <laughs> to go essentially fix another company away, the right. luggage company, which has come under a whole bit of other scrutiny, which ties into another story in the magazine by Rebecca Greenfield. It all comes together. It all it's comes almost together. like we had a plan. It's almost like there's this editor of the magazine uh, who has I this know nothing. vision. I know nothing. But what I will say about – well, actually, I want to ask you again about this. The COO thing. What what did he do? Because a lot of this – to see this kind of returns – I mean, you've got to be, like, laying groundwork. And, you know, you look at Apple and, like, before Tim Cook was CEO. He yeah. was effectively doing the same thing. And that's where it got to see growth. So, A – what did he do at yeah. Lululemon? And then B, what do you think he's going to do at a web? Well, it's a great question. And what the management team essentially did, and this is where private equity really did, I think, bring some expertise is the supply chain was broken. And basically that had shrunk gross margins by 600 basis points. So six percentage points, you think about how much profit was being left on the table. They put out a plan that said, all right, let's make up half of that. Let's get 300 basis points back. They ended up getting 800, so eight percentage points. And so that's the profit engine. The other thing they did was they said, we need to sell more to men, we need to be global, and we need to figure out e-commerce. And those, I mean, you think about that, right? Opening up e-commerce, you're going to have maximum appeal. But then also the the men question I thought was a really interesting one. I mean, this was a brand that resonated first and foremost with women. Right. So how do they talk about reaching men instead? I mean, it's basically a different kind of marketing. Other than the amazing shorts that I own. Right, but. exactly. I mean, the other thing they're doing is they're opening different sorts of experiential stores. They've got a membership uh, program that they are experimenting with now. So they've got to keep ahead. You know, this guy, David Musifer, the managing partner at Advent, I spent a lot of time with him on this story. I've gotten to know him pretty well over the years. And his background is really interesting. He's from Alabama. His dad was in the retail business. So he understands the disruptions in many ways. And anyway, you should check out the story. It was so fun to work on. Just to dwell on today, though, for a second, like what what is the market reacting to, in your opinion here? I think the market is reacting to a company that has consistently been beating and beating big and it was not quite as enthusiastic i think you do have a ceo in calvin mcdonald who's a little bit more conservative at this point so it'll be interesting to see what happens 
after the turn of the year. Well, and when you have a stock that's pretty much doubled, you know, investors' expectations are high. So it's not just about meeting expectations. It's it's about blowing it out. And I don't think we necessarily got that. All right. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Joel Weber, thank you so much, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Check out my co-host story in the magazine and also and the, full the conversation, interviews. Yeah. Yes. Our Bloomberg Extra podcast and also on our weekend show. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. It is indeed. Yana Barton is back with us, Equity Portfolio Manager at Eaton Vance. Joining us on the phone from Boston. I don't know if you're able to keep up with the headlines. We're barely doing it. (laughs) Um, Same here. (laughs) Yeah, great to have you here too. Um, Also, uh, trade. U.S. China. How does this essentially kind of change your portfolio uh, models if indeed we get phase one, you know, done? Uh, thanks again for having me back. I mean, who would have thought, right, in a year that has been marred by all these tariff disputes, geopolitical blowups, uh, tweets, and so forth, the market is up over 28%, and it just tells you that perhaps not all good news is in the market, and there's still value to be had. I think as it relates to our focused growth portfolio, where we have about 30, 35 positions, you know, we're investing mostly uh, within the secular growth uh, theme around them, so we're investing for the long term, and while this is certainly more positive for cyclically oriented areas of the market, I think the dividends of this type of headline is obviously as it relates to corporate confidence, which should yield better corporate investment outcomes and therefore corporate profitability, which should enable the stocks to go higher. Well, and to that point, Yana, I mean, is this something, and I, this is probably unknowable, but I'm going to ask you anyway, uh, <laughs> is this the sort of thing that if you are if you're putting yourself in the seat of a CEO that is enough to essentially maybe give you some confidence as you say to actually make some moves or does it just maybe remove some of the worry if you catch my nuance there I, I do. I, I think, you know, the devil is in the details, and all of us have yet to uh, see what the actual details about this uh, development will be. But I think what you're seeing is, again, the fact that they can come to the table and come out with any type of deal, phase one, skinny deal, whatever you want to call it. I think it allows us to think, okay, this is the first step of what could be a multi-series endeavor. And now I will at least know what the rules of engagement are, and I can proceed Um, into 2020 and beyond. You know, we've been talking about sort of, you know, we're entering a new decade. Uh, We talk about 2020 vision. And the interesting thing is that it comes to investments, and you guys know this better than anyone, the longer your time horizon, the clearer the picture gets. Unlike, you know, in in our eyesight, the closer we are to something, um, the the clearer we think we can see. But actually, as you have alluded in the beginning of the program, if you're following every headline, the the more uh, fuzzy the picture becomes because you're, you're acting and reacting to every news um, data point. So I think 
most importantly, I think, if anything, this certainly gives the bullish sentiment to the profitability picture into 2020, which is looking to be about 9% earnings growth. Now, recall this year we might come out with zero. So this is better than zero. And then it might allow us. But it's to coming say, off hey, a low, right? <laughs> or exactly. not? the comparison is not great. Exactly. I mean, any, anything off of zero will look better <laughs> on a calm basis. But at least now we have some earnings growth well, and ultimately profitability should drive price so, um, of stocks So, higher. Yana, what we got from the Fed um, yesterday, last meeting of 2019, um, that the Fed will, it looks like it might be on hold for all of 2020. Um, we had a guest, Diane Swank, uh, covering the Fed uh, yesterday. And she said, well, we could see a rate cut next year. And I do wonder, you know, if that's the backdrop that we get nothing, no Fed activity at all, no Fed movement, what kind of backdrop is that for corporate earnings? It sounds, is it even better than maybe potentially the expectations that you just laid out for us? What does it mean for the investment environment? I think, you know, what we heard from the Fed is that they remain accommodative um, mm -hmm. and they remain on the sidelines, which is good news. And I think their job is to manage financial system stability, not financial market stability. And somebody made that point very clear yesterday, which I think is extremely important. The markets can overreact to a headline, a comment, or... One of our um, guests actually said that, Jeff Rosenberg over at BlackRock, that the whole idea is, is about, you know, not financial market stability but making sure that, um, you know, money markets aren't tightening and that there's, exactly. you know, access to, to that market for companies and so on and so forth. Yeah, but I, I think if you look at sort of, you know, where we are on the 10-year um, number here at 1.9 um, and the effective Fed funds rate, it's still extremely accommodative. We were talking about, you know, one and three quarters or so. So nobody will say that it is restraining income, any kind of investment or financing activity. And if anything, perhaps this is the time for, um, for someone to, um, you know, move the baton from the monetary policy to fiscal policy. Hey, when wouldn't it be great if we now get stimulus from the government and actually investment and spending that is stemming from a completely different side um, of the equation? I think it's good news. Well, and speaking of different sides of the equation, Yana, we've been joking, but only a little bit about if trade does get resolved, what are we going to talk about every day? But in all seriousness, like <laughs> what does the market worry about, about if it's stocks. not worried about trade? <laughs> Let's let's go back to basics and fundamentals and like earnings or something <laughs> exactly wouldn't it be something you know um, but one of the questions as a growth manager that I constantly get is given the fact that the growth indices have gone up over 30% everyone is sort of calling for this rotation into value understandably because it has underperformed but I will recall Buffett's very famous quote and that is price is what you pay but value is what you get you get and I think there's a lot of value in the market that is not being talked about. And much of it is in higher growth areas because of the multiples assigned to areas like healthcare, like consumer discretionary communication services, compared to something that is like REITs and UTEs that have been bid up because of this uncertainty. Hey. So I think we're going to be talking stocks, and I welcome that conversation. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Yana, thank you so much. Yana Barton, Equity Portfolio Manager at Eaton Vance, on the phone from Boston. So she, like a lot of other folks, sounds like we're looking forward to <laughs> being able to move beyond trade. Look, it is I would interesting to see where the conversation goes. Well, absolutely. And keep in mind, we are going into an election year in 2020. Oh, so yeah. that's probably what we're actually Next. going to be talking about. But, you know, 
going back to what some to something Yana said at the top, you know, this notion of does business sentiment change, I think really will be a key, key question here mm-hmm. because we've talked so much. We were talking about it yesterday with Scott Miner, this dichotomy, this divergence, I should say, between a cautious business and an enthusiastic consumer. If you have enthusiastic consumers and enthusiastic businesses, right. then, you know, there may be no stopping this uh, never-ending bull run. Right, and if there's still, com- you know, if there's pressure on companies to make their earnings numbers, then they've got to keep, you know, if, they, if there's uncertainty out there, they're not going to spend, they're going to cut more costs, and right. that impacts workers and, of course, spending in the economy. But if there's, you take away some of the uncertainties, then they're likely to be more optimistic and go out there and spend a little bit. So, yeah, good conversation. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.